For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Hello, everybody. Happy Tuesday and happy November. I know every year at this time, I always say this, how did this happen? It seems like this, the years just get faster and faster and faster. I hope you all had a great Halloween. I did. I did something last night that I have not done, and I have been in New York for 43 years. And last night, thank my husband, who's a landscape architect, one of his clients uh, got us VIP tickets uh, to go into the VIP section to see the uh, Greenwich Village Halloween parade. And we stayed until it started to rain and then we left. Uh, but it was an incredible evening and we had the time of our lives. Those of you who saw me, I was dressed in blue. People were asking, um, who are you? Are you a Smurf? Are you a grape? What are you? I said, I am just vote blue. That's all it was. I was vote blue. And it turns out that his wife is the treasury chairperson uh, for Kathy Hochul who was running, of course, for the governor of New York. So it was a, a right move for me to make last night. So as you can see, our word of the day is growth. And today is all about growth. Uh, I, I am so excited about our guest today because there are so many things that I want to talk about. And I want to begin by thanking Rose Apuzo. Uh, Rose is my, one of, I, I would say, one of my be very best friends. And it was Rose who read an article about our guest, uh, Debbie Williams, and said, you have to have her on the show. Uh, Rose reads these articles and she reaches out and she makes these suggestions. I read the article and it was a no-brainer. And once I read about Debbie, I wanted to have her on the show. And we're going to talk about her life, her career, and her body of worth which I want to celebrate. But I wanted to share something with you before I bring Debbie on. So, uh, well, I, I, actually, I'm going to bring her on uh, so that we can talk while I'm talking about this. Hello, Debbie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Richard. How are you? Yes, I wanted to share a story because I made a very, for me, it was a difficult decision because I have been on Twitter for a long, long time. And I made the decision today, number one, for everyone who's watching, uh, to leave Twitter. And I left Twitter because of comments that Elon Musk made. Uh, it's one thing to have an opinion, and I am all open for everyone to have their own opinion. But when you share false information and you continue to share this information, uh, a, a man in his 80s was beaten with a hammer a couple of days ago. And the owner of a major platform where some people get their news, by the way, uh, sent out false information yesterday. And as I saw what he was sending out, and then when the news media picked up on this, he right. attacked the news media. Right. So I said, I, you know, that was a real, diff I, I, it, well, it was an easy decision for me to leave this uh, this morning. And now I'm going to make an announcement here. Um, I have a very dear friend. Uh, and uh, who a few years ago, something happened to him. He was very, very, very involved uh, on Facebook and it had become his life. This is a guy who was an amazing arranger, an amazing songwriter, uh, an amazing uh, you know, collaborator in the music industry, uh, who was well known in the New York uh, music industry. And he had reached a point in his life where every night he would come home and he would have his platform and he would have his audience and he would sit there and people were listening to him and people were communicating with him. And this became his life. And mm -hmm. he, he became like those people who went to uh, the uh, casinos who were obsessed with hoping that they were going to win something. <laughs> yes. And then one night he comes home, he goes on and he can't get on to Facebook. And he began to panic and he, uh, he was trying to log on. Somehow he got locked off. Uh, all of the photographs, everything that he had accrued for years and years and years were gone. 
everything was gone. And he had a panic attack. And he oh. had a panic attack to the point where he thought that he was going to have a nervous breakdown. His brother, who is a therapist on the West Coast, flew to New York to be with him. It was oh, so no. because he just felt that he could not let go. Um, I realize that it has become such a major part of my life uh, for such a long time since I got on Facebook. Right. I made the decision today that on December 1st, I am deactivating my Facebook account. Wow. I'm, I'm leaving Facebook. Um, I, I want to get back to what my life was like before. I will still do other aspects of my life, but I want to get away from this. And I want to ask you, um, you said to me before we went live that you don't really utilize these two platforms that often. Uh, Facebook, know, yes. Facebook, okay. yes. Yes. And, and Facebook is a great connector for all my different places in life and all the different people I've come in contact with from my childhood and everything. It's been a great connector for that reason and, and an information highway that way, which I love about it. You know, if I have friends coming in town and they want to go see a show here, I just get on there and contact whoever that I know is involved in that show and make it happen. And so it has a lot of benefits in that way. However, we're all seeing things that we kind of don't like going on. I've never been a Twitter user, thank God. I'm on there, but I don't use it. I only and, use it for promotional purposes. Right. And that's what everybody does, I think. And uh, TikTok, I've never been on. Me uh, Facebook, <laughs> Facebook has been Facebook has been my connector. And it's hard to give that up. Uh, I think during COVID, we all used it way more than we ever expected because it was our connection to human beings, you know, and that's a really important thing when you're locked in a house and you can't go out for two months, you know? So, um, and I used it also as a political platform during those four years where I was angry about everything, but uh, I didn't only do that. I did a lot of activism. I went to DC six times. I was involved in the very first women's March. Thank you. Helped them put that whole thing together. Craziest thing I ever did, but the best thing I ever did, it was I get goosebumps when I talk about it because it was just such an amazing thing. And then I went back for move on and did another thing. Uh, I did about six different things. You know, my experience in TV lent myself to these rallies, easy peasy to do a rally compared to what I've done, you know, in TV. And so I thought, where can I take my energy and my, my talents and help in this, what's going on? And so, in fact, I just got back uh, from D.C. a few weeks ago, there was another Women's March. So I went for that one uh, about getting out the vote. And I love that you had a blue costume on Halloween. I think that was perfect. <laughs> uh, I wish I had thought of that. Uh, but, you know, it's it's. I, I used Facebook for that reason during that time, you know, and it was a good way to get out some of my frustration, you know, and do Facebook Live whenever they would have the, as I called them, the shit show um, moments. And so then I would just go on live and all my friends would get on and we'd make fun of it, you know? And, um, so that's why I like it and why it's hard for me to give it up, but I commend you. That's well, a hard thing uh, to do. It, it, you know, I, I have a friend who left, uh, quite some time ago and she said that leaving it was, she said she danced in the streets the day that she left because it too had become, you know, a, it had sucked the life out of her, essentially, from taking away from the other things that she did. And I love Facebook. And for all the reasons that you just mentioned, yeah. same thing for me. But I yeah. want to ask, I want to go back to something else you just said. Have you always been an activist? Or what no. propelled well, you? Well, yes, I will say when I was a child, living, uh, when we had left the show, we settled in Marin County, outside San Francisco. Vietnam War was going on. Uh, so I did little things, you know, in Golden Gate Park, not big things. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a history teacher in high school that um, taught us about every kind of other history. So when the Indians took over Alcatraz, she got a boat and our class took food and provisions and uh, blankets and everything out to Alcatraz to the Indians. And I think that kind of ignited something in me at that very Can you moment. imagine that happening today? 
I don't know, you know, like, I think when, as awful as it was, when Trump took office, it ignited something in all of us again, like, oh boy, we better start paying attention, you know, because I think we've been apathetic for a while. And I, myself, I know that, you know, raising kids and working and everything. Mm -hmm. you, and my father was very political on the other side. Um, and we would have very heated discussions about things. He's no longer with us, uh, but he would listen to Rush and all those kinds of things. And so it was it was really hard. And we had many discussions about politics. And I said, I don't even want to talk about it, Dad. I don't like politics. And he said, there will come a time when you will get more into politics. And that did happen. You know, he was right. He, he said it, you know, when I had time to do it, you know, when I had time to to listen and to pay attention. And so now I do my activism and I love it. I love it. Anytime I can go to DC, I go. How long has it been since your father has been gone? Uh, now, hmm, uh, five years. My mother's been gone 13, my dad's been gone five. Wow. Uh, you said your father was on the other side. Uh, yes. My grandparents, uh, my grandfather was very much a Republican. But I think that my grandfather would be appalled at what this party has turned into. I agree. I agree. Uh, so I want to ask, what, what do you think your father would think about where we are today? You know, my father had an epiphany towards the end of his life saying, you know what, politics, nothing like that. Family is more important. You know, it took a little while, Dad. Um, but he had that epiphany. He... I don't know how he would feel about this because if you look at the Republican Party back in the 50s or the 60s even, it was it sounded like it was the Democratic Party when you read Yes, I know. Right, you know. And so I believe there were these die there have been these diehard Republicans, and I have many friends that are, but there's a difference to me between a Trump Republican and a Republican. I think there's two very different factions. And so um I think that what we're in, I don't even understand what is happening now. I think they're just all following a trend that they think is going to help them. And they don't care it, what they say. They don't care what lie they tell. They don't care as long as they get votes, you know, and it's really sad. It really is very sad now. I got to visit the Capitol when I was in DC this past time. And I got a wonderful tour by a friend who works there for a congressman, a, Re a Republican congressman. And she arranged this whole tour. When you are there and you are in that capital, which is, it's awe-inspiring, you know, it, this is our, this yeah. is our country mm -hmm. and this is our history. And to think of what happened when January 6th happened uh, in that place, it was just, it was sad to me. It was just very sad, you know, because I felt this, patriotic feeling and you know when I was in there and and to think of some of the things that are going on now it just is scary this thing with Pelosi's husband I mean that it just takes it to a new place you know well for me you know and you know anyone who watches the show I try and I've tried very hard never to make these shows political mm -hmm. however certain things in the last few weeks have just pushed me to the point where I am, first of all, I'm very, I'm petrified in the direction that this country is going in right now. You and um, both. And you talk about the the Republican Party and let's, let's get it right out there. There are people in the Republican Party who are not those Trump Republicans. We know that. But I think that somehow deep down inside, that there is an anger that has been uh, boiling inside of people for so yes. long. Yes. And this anger has come out to the point when you have a woman in uh, Arizona running to be the governor of the state and she makes a joke about a man being hit with a hammer. I know. And the people in the audience laugh at it. Yeah. Uh, I don't get it. Uh, I don't there's either. no humor in it. No. When the son of the former president of the United States posed a picture of himself with a hammer. I know. Saying this is his Halloween costume. 
and people are not outraged by that. I don't get it. I don't get it either. How has our country gotten to the point where we are not outraged by those images and that uh, we are not going, I, I mean, that's why I took a stand today. My leaving Twitter in the scheme of things, may it may, it may make an impact. It may not make an impact. Right, right. Uh, you know, I had to say, this is somewhere that I don't belong. No. And, you know, I made a decision, uh, you know, uh, over on the, on the weekend, somebody who was supposed to be on this show, uh, I heard an interview where he was pro-Trump and I made a decision that I did not want to put him on this platform. Good. And his publicist went ballistic on me uh, saying that I was co uh, committing career suicide. I'm being out. I am being transparent with everybody right now. And uh, I, uh, and he said, you're saying to me that you do not want to put people on your show who have a difference of opinion. I said, I am saying that I do not want to put people on the show who feel that that man belongs in the White House. And, and even today, I mean, the Supreme Court put a stop. I saw that. On, I you saw know, that. What, what, what is going on? I saw that. And, you know, it's... Um, uh, I mean, to finish my statement, they put a stop uh, on uh, the court proceedings of being right. able to see... Uh, the former yes, president uh, yeah. tax uh, uh, records. Yep, it's it's. Uh, I mean, where do we go now if the Supreme Court is now a partisan kind of a thing? You know, I find that also the separation between church and state has gotten a little muddied recently, uh, and we're going through. I don't know. I don't know. I have. A grandchild now. I have two children, and this is not the country I want for them. What is happening? You know. And when when Trump was elected, my kids called me, and I said, "I'm moving to another country." And my son said, "No, mom, you can't do that." He said, "You're a fighter. You got to fight." And that is when my activism kicked in. I went, "You're right. You're absolutely right." And went to that first women's march. Got involved in it ran that rally with everybody there, which was crazy, but that was how it was. My kids go, no, mom, you got to fight. So I did. I want to say something about you that I truly love and admire. I mean, and we're going to now focus on you for a moment. <laughs> okay. uh, you, I mean, you were born uh, literally, and it's in your bio, in a trunk. Yep. You grew up... Uh, in the world of show business, uh, you uh, were born into the world of ice skating. I asked for a photograph of you as a five-year-old. Um, I love this photograph. There you are. Uh, <laughs> this was my first choice for my costume last night, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you, I asked for a photograph of a five-year-old, and I'm going to go in this direction for a moment because uh, shifting gears drastically I asked for a photograph as a five-year-old because to me, the five-year-old is the purest self. It's before life begins to tell you who you should or should not be. It's before, uh, and what can you tell us about this little girl? She'd already been working for two years. Uh, I went into, we joined um, first Ice Vogue's and then it was Holiday on Ice. Uh, they were owned by the same company. And so I went in the, the show when I was three. Mm -hmm. And my father says, I couldn't remember the routine at first. So they sat one of the stagehands down in the front row and dad was behind the curtain and I would skate around and dad would yell to me what to do. And then the stagehand would yell. And I said, how long did that go on? He goes, two weeks. And then you remembered the routine. And so I grew up thinking everybody did this, what I did, you know, skating in arenas in front of 5,000 people. I didn't know that this was not something everybody did, you know. And, and you know, my playtime was backstage, you know, with crates. You know, I didn't, we didn't carry a lot of toys and things on the road. But that five-year-old, I had a sense of professionalism at that age. 
you had to, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and you knew this is you're kind of like a trained monkey, really. It's like, this is what you do. You go out every night. My mother said the first words I said when they were in a show that we were traveling with when I was a baby, show, 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 show. When they would, <laughs> when they would go to the show at night, I would always want to go and I go show, show, show. And so they would take me and while my mother was out doing a number, one of the chorus girls would watch me and then dad would be doing, you know, this is how they did it. Mm -hmm, and everybody mm -hmm. in the dressing room would just watch me. And so that was what I did until I was 15 years old. Now you lived on the road. Um, did you, growing up, did you get a chance to develop friendships? I mean, outside of the business. It we, uh, I was born in Columbus, Ohio. I was out of there, I think probably at six months. Uh, and we went on the road, but, um, I have a big Irish Catholic family in Columbus, Ohio. So I have 18 first cousins who are there. So every summer we had one month off. One of your cousins is watching. My cousin, Patty, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, well, <laughs> let me go back. Uh, let's see. Uh, one of your cousins, I saw a comment a few moments ago, uh, probably talking uh and i'll find out who the cousin is uh it's patty brown is it patty yep it's patty okay, great hello patty okay <laughs> and so i have and patty we're like sisters our moms were sisters my mom was uh one of six the youngest and so I would go home in the summer and get to ride my bicycle around grandma's neighborhood and be a normal kid. Although normal kid, it's so funny, but we'd all be, be home at 4th of July. What did I do on 4th of July? I had to put on a show on grandma's driveway. I'd get all the neighborhood kids to come and put on a show 4th of July with sparklers and I'd have them dancing and doing things, you know? And my father used to say, like we went to my Aunt Marthy's one day, a lot of kids in the circle and dad would say, do not organize the kids and i go what, what you know i was like seven do mm -hmm. not organize the kids just play so it was in this big circle and dad was in with my aunt and all of a sudden he looks out the window and he sees all the kids lined up in this circle and me in the middle telling them what to do and he's like when does this you know and that's how i played you know i you know i i was inept at playing i was always doing a show and uh and, and you know, it lent to creativity, God knows. When you're in a backstage and you want to play, you've got to find things to play with. So wardrobe crates and, um, you know, pulling tricks on the chorus girls, you know, with a rubber glove behind a, with a, I, this was my favorite thing, rubber glove on, an, on a uh, hanger. And then when they come off to do a quick change, put the glove through and it would touch them and they'd scream. And that was my playtime. <laughs> Did it always feel like playtime to when did it ever feel like work to you? Rehearsals, which I hated. When we would go, like we did our school, you know, we did a correspondence school. And mm -hmm. um, my dad taught me through the third grade. My mom taught my brother through the second. Uh, I needed to depart from my father a little bit. You know, it was 24 7, our mm -hmm. family, you know. And so a chorus girl on the show had a teaching degree. So then that's how we did school. You know, we do it in the room, this correspondence course, and then we'd go to rehearse. School at 10 o'clock in the morning for about two hours. And then we would rehearse. I hated rehearsal, hated it. Because here's why I hated it, Richard. The lighting sucked. Where's the spotlight? <laughs> the lighting in arenas is just- It's all about amazing. the colored lights. <laughs> right, you know, and so when you're in an arena in the daytime and daytime light is coming in, ew, and it's gray and it's ugly. And so it was just so boring to me. I hated rehearsal. And it was always about learning something new. And dad was a bit of a taskmaster, um, you know, and I would get this every once in a while if I couldn't land a jump or something, he'd go, don't give me that look. And I wouldn't know what that look was. And then I'd sass and then, we, he would skate, he would chase me around the ice skating. He was bigger. He was faster. He'd always catch me. I don't know why I ran, but I hated rehearsal. That was my thing. And that's the only thing I love skating in the show. Audience applause, lights, love that, but no rehearsal. And you said this was pretty much your life until you were 15 years old. Uh, growing up in this world, uh, you, you could have gone in two directions. You could have said, this is the world for me, or I'm going to get out of this. But you, of course, decided that this is the world for you. Um, what was it that kept you in the world of show business? We're going to talk about the changes that came along in a few moments. 
Um, I got to go to real school when I was 15, had never been in a real school in my life with children my own age. That was different. You asked, did I make friends? You know, we always made friends in different towns, but it was mm -hmm. like, make a friend, bye-bye, go to the next town. You know, we paid for a week in each town. Did you keep and, in touch with them? Like, did you correspond with them? Uh, or was uh, that yeah, the end of I had pen pals. Like, I had a lot of kids that wrote me who would come to the show. So I had, you know, I would write them back and everything. You know, a, little, a lot of little boys wrote me. And um, I would write them back. And, um, but as far as close friends, there were a few kids in the show whose parents were in the show. They, they weren't in the show like we were, but they traveled on the road. So I had a group of like five course I was the leader of the group uh you know and we would play backstage and everything and that was about it and you know it's a small group when you start talking you know like there's another uh woman who's a friend of mine Melanie Cook and her family had a family act after ours and we talk about that you know like we're a very small group of people who did this you know we don't have a lot in common as a childhood with them but went to real school got uh, second lead in the play immediately because we also did summer mm -hmm. stock in the summer sometimes, Richard. My father had us doing mm -hmm. summer stock. So sometimes that month off wasn't a month off. We did Music Man in summer stock and my brother was Winthrop. I was Amaryllis. Um, Dad had us working all the time. And so we, when we, when I left, I went to Sun Valley, Idaho, had the time of my life, lived like a normal person, no show business. Mm -hmm. Although I did skate there and I taught there. And a friend of mine was putting a show together with Peggy Fleming to go to Europe and said, do you want to do this? And I hadn't been to Europe yet. I was 19. Mm -hmm. Yes. So there were four girls and four guys. And we went with Peggy and we did this tour of Germany. And I met a choreographer on that show that became the mm -hmm. choreographer on the Donnie and Marie show, Bob mm -hmm. Paul. Right. He said, do you want to come do this? And I went, oh, I don't want to live in L.A. And I really didn't want to skate much anymore. But I thought, hey, this is a, a good way to learn about something else in life. So I went and did the Donnie Marie show as a skater dancer, uh, the Ice Angels. I remember, I remember. I, oh yes, I was an Ice Angel and I was there, you know, for all those years. And then when it ended, I had met people in production and I transferred over in production because it seemed, seemed so much more collaborative to me, you know, and it wasn't about this. It wasn't about all these things, you know, I was a part of a group all working together to create a show. And I love that. So that's how that transition happened. But, and this goes back to what I started to say earlier about what I really love about you is that when you're, when you got, became pregnant with your son, yeah. um, you, your he was your first priority in your life. Yeah. Yep. And everything in your life changed to yes. make him the number one priority. Yes. How, I mean, it's so unusual for a lot of people in this business. How were you able to really make that shift? I mean, obviously the love is there, but to really compartmentalize your life and God bless you for making that. Uh, in my, in my 20, I, I had always wanted children. Okay. So I didn't have him till I was 31 and I had always during my twenties, um, mm -hmm. I was producing, um, I was working on Casey Kasem's America's right. Top Ten right. that was on the air. So I produced that show and I produced other shows for them. So then come along the time I get pregnant with Taylor, uh, I thought, I can't spend my life in editing. I don't want to be in an office every day, but I am the kind of person I need to work somewhat. You know, this is what I've done my whole life. And so my husband at the time, Scott, said, um, you have your DGA card. And thanks to a friend of mine who talked me into getting that card long before I ever used it, five years before I used it, he said, why don't you stage manage, you know? Um, and I knew some directors as well. So certain directors at the time, Jeff Goldstein, Paul Miller, they gave me opportunities, you know, to come in. And there were not many women doing it at mm -hmm, that time. Mm -hmm. And if you were a woman that did it, you moved up to being an AD in the booth right away. And so when I started doing it, I didn't like it in the beginning. I was like, I don't know if I like this. Uh, but then I decided to become a first, a lead. There were no women leads. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There still are not. And so once I did that and I could um, take in the entire show, because when you're a lead on a, on a, you know, and I started doing the award shows and the specials and everything. And when you're a lead on that show, the director is far away in a truck 
and you have to be him on stage. You're his eyes, you're his ears. You have to communicate with all the departments and everything. And it felt very comfortable to me. Well, I want to go there for just a moment. What gave you the training for that? Because, I mean, you became the go-to person for this. But, well, here's the deal. I got the opportunity to work with some of the best guys in the business, okay? The best. I mean, I was working with stage managers, David Waiter, Densi Nelson, Kenny Stein. These were the guys, you know? So I'm an observer. I would just watch and learn and watch and learn, you know? And so when it finally, when I finally got the opportunity to do my first show as a lead, it was a producer that said, okay, we want you to do this. And I was like, you know, <laughs> but, but to me, everything is logic. Everything is logic, you know, in our business, not in my life. I have no logic in my life, but everything is logic. And so I thought we have major set moves and setups and everything. And I will say that first show I did, um, it all, it all came off. Everything worked. Um, did I really know what I was doing? I don't think I really did, knowing what I know now, you know, but I did it. And so once you do it like that, you get the confidence. And 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 then around that time also, I worked with a man, Jerry Lewis. Um, and my son was two the first time I worked on the telethon. And then one year they said to me, we want you to be with Jerry. And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to be with Jerry. He was intimidating, you know? So mm -hmm. they, they said, no, we want you to be with Jerry. And I was like, oh. so we do this first telethon. I think it was, how old was my son? 89, I think. And we do this whole telethon together, 24 hours, you know, him. It was 23. Um, and after it, he said to me, I never want to do this without you. And I was like, hmm. So that was a confidence booster for me. Because I thought if okay, I could change Jerry go Lewis. Let's you know? go there for a moment. Yeah. What was it that made him say that? I'm very. What was I it that you brought to the table? I, I'm very attentive to talent and watching their every move. I also think like a performer. Okay. In my background, I think like a performer. So if I'm, I could think ahead. Mm -hmm. of knowing what that person needs in that moment when you're on live TV. That's part of my background. Your, your background, your upbringing. Right. And so I think that I was five steps ahead of him in what he needed. And he loved that. Plus, plus, I have a really stupid sense of humor. Okay. My, my son says I have the sense of humor of a 13-year-old boy. Um, and, and Jerry and I connected on that, you know, when he wanted to throw an ax into the whole thing, you know, which he would do all the time. And he'd say to me, I want to do this kid. And I'd go, okay, let's do it. And, and, or I'm not going to do that. And, and so it was funny because he would always try to make me laugh. If there was an act he didn't like on stage, he'd say something to me or give me one of his Jerry looks and I would break up. And this was our little repartee with each other, and it worked. And I did 25 years with him. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. it was. And we became friends, you know, as crazy as, and Jerry can be crazy in every way, which I adored. Uh, sometimes he could be, you know, sometimes he would pull things on me, and I'd go, don't do it. Do not. He would back off, you know. Uh, and he'd always write me a little apology note. If he messed up with me, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he'd write me apology note the next day. I'd get it on his little thing, you know. And I'd go, okay, finished, done, moving on. That's how we were. And but I think there was, a, there was a mutual respect, too, I think, you know. Because he, he grew up in Sheol business, you know. He was a kid, you know, and parents performing in the Catskills. You know, it was very similar in a lot of ways. So I understood him. And I had a difficult father. So I knew how to handle that difficult man at times because of my difficult father. So that I think that helped too. For you. you said <laughs> earlier that when that first thrust at, into the spotlight, I'm going to call it, happened for you and you didn't, I mean, I believe it, you know, if you, you just fake it and make everyone believe that you know what you're doing. Right. Um, what were those fake moments that you were faking to get through those moments, if you know what I'm saying to you. I do, you know, like, 
Well, here's the thing. When you're a producer, you can fake it, okay? When you are a stage manager on a live show with set moves and people and the whole thing, you can't really fake it, Richard. You have to be on your game. Mm -hmm. The only fake I think that I did was I felt I looked a little too feminine. So in the very beginning, I wore a baseball cap and I'd wear my cowboy boots. That was my way to, I don't know, not butch myself up, but just make myself up a little bit. <laughs> okay. you know, just, and right. I had long hair, you know, and I got over that, you know, in a year or so, I just went, no, this is me. This is who I bring to this party. And the biggest thing I wanted to do was to earn the respect of all the people I worked with. You know, when you're working with a crew at the Shrine Auditorium or the Kodak or whatever, back then it was the Shrine, um, these are hardcore guys. So my goal was to be so good that I earned their respect. That mm -hmm. was important to me. And I did. You and know? you did. Of course and I did. So, so as much as I always say that to people, I go, stage managing is not a job you can fake. You can't. When you're right out there on that stage and you're a lead, you can't fake it. You just can't. You got to do it. So... As your career is unfolding and all of these incredible uh, opportunities that you're part of, were you mapping out a career for you or, or was it, uh, or you were getting the calls were coming in? I'm the feather in the wind. <laughs> I'm not a plant. I'm not a plant. Honest to God. I go where the wind takes me. You know, it's like I say to young people coming into our business, you know, and they'll have this idea of what they want to do. And I go, just release that a little bit because sometimes things take you to places you don't expect. Certainly this career I had as a stage manager, it took me to a place I didn't expect. That was not in any kind of thought process in my brain. And so um, I, I just kind of went, and then when you're working in freelance, you know, you start getting connected to certain directors and I got to work with, oh my God, such great directors. I mean, Bruce Gowers, um, the master of music, shooting music, uh, brilliant guy. I got to work with Bruce on so many shows. He was also the director on Idol in the beginning. Uh, I got to work with Jeff Margolis, you know, who oh, yeah. wow. so many Oscars, you know. Uh, I got to work with really, and Paul Miller, who helped me in the beginning. Uh, I got to work with really great people. And you learn every, you know, every time you work with somebody like that, you learn something new, you know. And so I had wonderful opportunities to work with really great people. But at that time I was that girl, you know, and there weren't many, they were in the truck, but they weren't on the stage. So I want to compartmentalize a couple of things. Number one, is there any particular producer that you've worked with that you feel has truly shaped you? Producer, um, boy, I've worked with so many. Um, George Slaughter. I did so many shows with George and, you know, George was an empresario. He, he mm -hmm. was, came from show business background and I always loved working with him um, because he had that kind of a, he was Mr. Showbiz, you know, yeah. and creative, you know, mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. you worked with George in his production office, which he still has on Beverly Boulevard, um, you went in there and, Nobody was on a computer. Everybody sat around the table. All the writers sat around the table in this big, George loved it. And everybody was throwing out ideas and it was that collaboration kind oh, of Oh, I thing. love that. That's wonderful. And, and that was what it was like then. Nobody was in their office far away on a computer. Everybody was, George wanted everybody in that room. That was the process, you know? And that to me is, is what show business should be about, you know, you. all those Absolutely. guys, yeah, all those guys, Gary Smith, George, um, oh God, Dick Clark. I worked with Dick on a ton of shows, Mr. Hands-On, you know, and those guys were very different producers back then in those days. They all came from show business background. They weren't a lawyer. They weren't a this, they weren't a that. They came from show business backgrounds and I'm really grateful that I got the opportunity to work with all those guys, you know, and I still, I still see George. Uh, he's amazing. Um, I talked to Jeff Margolis on the phone. We all stay connected, you know, on zoom and everything. Uh, but those were people that really shaped my career.
Well, what do you think is the biggest change that's happened in the business that you, I mean, the business has changed a lot since you uh, went into this. All these, the 40 years, the business has changed drastically. What, what are the changes that you really love that have changed in the business? And what are the things that you just go, oh, God, I wish it was go back to what it was. Well, like I said about the collaborative, you know, kind of thing. I mean, I worked with a, another producer, Chris Beard. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I mean, Chris, if you had an idea and you were live on the air, we did it. You know, that was Chris because the, his brain never stopped working. I will say when our idol producers came over, Nigel Lithgow and um, uh, Kenny Warwick, um, they were from that old showbiz background, you know? And so they had both been dancers and choreographers and Nigel had that same kind of thing that George had where he didn't care if he had an idea and we're live on the air and we're in a commercial, we did it. You know, I mean, you hung on by your teeth sometimes in getting that show on the air and off the air mm -hmm. because there was always a creative process happening. But I believe that gave the show the energy it had because we never knew what was going to happen. You know, mm -hmm. we just had to facilitate it when it happened, you know, and that's why Bruce Gowers was so damn good. Bruce doesn't write a note in his script. He just off the top of his head just goes, you know, oh, I love that. and that's, I don't know how, but that's how Bruce did the show. And so, you know, that's, those kind of producers are people that I, I think I gravitated to and I loved, you know, you got an idea, you want to do it right now, let's do it. That's fun. You know, uh, we did a thing one time where we were doing a happy birthday thing. And we had, oh, it was a Motown number. It was a happy birthday Motown or something. And all the kids had to rehearse this group number, which they hated. And so we rehearsed, rehearsed, rehearsed in the morning. And all of a sudden I go upstairs and Nigel goes, Stevie Wonder's coming. Stevie Wonder's coming. Okay, what are we doing? Well, he wants to play the happy birthday song. And I'm like, Okay, well, we had a thing called a mobilator that we couldn't use. We never used. We had it at the beginning of the season. It wasn't functional. It didn't work. So I'm like, how am I going to get Stevie out if the kids are performing and you want to get him downstage? So I go to the grips and I go, hey, that mobilator, is it still working? They go, we think so. And I go, what if we put Steve <laughs> What if we put Stevie on it, open the wall, and then Stevie comes down on the mobilator? One of the guys goes, a little risky. And I go, let's do it. So... <laughs> We had never done it. We had never rehearsed it. Kids are doing their little group number and all of a sudden wall opens and I'm like, oh, please move Mobilator. And that Mobilator started coming. Stevie's on it. He's singing. And, and then I'm like, I hope it stops at the end of the stage. <laughs> oh my and, God, I love this. And the damn thing stopped. And the kids were around. We did the number. And it was like, oh my God. You know, but we did stuff like that all the time, Richard. That was not unusual. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm going to go back, you know, and again, I want to ask the same question, producer, now director, a director that really shaped you. Bruce Gowers. Bruce. The reason, and a lot of people that worked with Bruce said this, Bruce's process was out loud, okay? It wasn't in a script, it wasn't. You talk about, you would talk about um, something you wanted to do. And so then Bruce would talk it out. And so his process was so out loud that all of us who worked with him learned so much. Because Bruce's process, I mean, one of his ADs, she's a director now, my friend Sandy Restrepo, and she says the same thing. Bruce was that guy that when you're working with him, his process of doing something is so out loud and you're just listening and listening and going, okay, I'm learning all this right now, you know? And mm -hmm. so I would, in that way, and I worked really closely with Bruce um, for many, many years, uh, I would say it was Bruce. Now. I remember watching on Golden Pond Live with Julianne oh. and uh, Christopher Plummer, and which I loved, and uh, and then uh, uh, ER Live, and you know, and reading your bio and seeing that you were right there in the midst of all these. Were you the go-to person when they when these productions were going to be going live? At that time, I mean, I got the opportunity. We did ER Live, and my friend. Sorry. That's Julie Andrews now. Oh. I'm back. Okay, you're um, back. 
um, what was I going to say? Oh, um, yes, I became the go-to on all of those because I did ER and David Waiter was the lead and there were only four of us. And ER was a trip. That was a trip to do live. You know, we were actually, you're in that hospital. You know, when you're shooting film, you're shooting a scene, scene, scene. We were in that hospital for two weeks, very claustrophobic. And air conditioning doesn't work the same way as our air conditioning does on stage, you know. So there are a lot of things. Um, George Clooney was so afraid of remembering his lines that every day George would come in with a script that got smaller and smaller and smaller until the day of the show, it was like a Barbie script. I swear to God, it was that big. And he, <laughs> he used it as, you know, just a, a prompt to have for security, you know, but we all dressed up as doctors and nurses. So we're in those scenes in ER. And that was how we cued people. You know, you walk in and you put a tablet down on Laura's desk and that's her cue to talk. Or in, I was in an operating room standing at the operating table. And then when the cue came, I'd say, bag them, the scene would start. So that's how we did ER which was a trip. It was an mm -hmm. absolute blast. And we got to do it two times because it went like a race yes. you know, horse. And so after that, when George decided to do Failsafe, which was on CBS, it was a live TV movie, two hour live TV movie. David was supposed to do it and then he couldn't. And so he passed it along to me. So I got lucky. So I keyed the, when we did Failsafe, which was on two sound stages at Warner Brothers. And uh, it was the movie Failsafe from the, from the 50s and we had sets everywhere and people everywhere queuing things uh we have walter cronkite open the show never before has this been done since 19 <laughs> you know whatever uh and it was a blast and the thing about it which was so cool is we had film people live people we had our two groups okay the closer we came to the the actual show live we would take over you know we were always in there doing everything but it, slowly, slowly, live would take over. And it was a blast because we speak a different language and a lot of things, mm -hmm. but we speak the same language somewhat. And so it was one of, one of those big collaborative, th collaborative things that you just go, how lucky am I to be doing this? You know what I mean? Same on, on Golden Pond. You know, with Chris and Julie, that was like the best. Oh, yes. what a great special. Um, a couple of comments. Uh, Rosa Puzo. Uh, hi, Rose. Thanks for being here. Uh, Michael Orlan, who happens oh, to be Michael Orlan and I, we've been friends. When I worked in Atlantic City, he was our rehearsal pianist. Oh, uh, and uh, whatever happened to him? <laughs> he seems to be away somewhere, not doing anything. I know. I, I love Michael Orlan so much. Me so too. You, how long have you and Michael worked together? He Okay, this is a funny story, Richard. So... The first season of Idol, Michael was not with us. So, um, you know, when we do the Kelly Clarkson, the finale, that first finale, the most chaotic thing I've ever done, um, all of a sudden Fox was like, oh my God, all this viewership, we have to do a special. So they decided we were gonna do a special in Vegas, okay? There was a, Michael will know his name, I'm not gonna mention, we had a musical director at that time. Things weren't working out, okay? But I think he had hired Michael. So Michael became our accompanist in the rehearsal hall. And, um, oh my God, things were going wrong and everything. Well, everybody fell in love with Michael, everyone. And then Michael came on. So that was after season one, then he started season two with us. And forevermore, you know. The rest and, is history. That's great. And, you know, we all had a very close, you know, it was funny with Idol, you know, we, like, he would work with the kids this way. Uh, Ricky Minor would work with kids this way. Then I'd work with kids this way. So we all would talk to each other about what was going on, you know, with this kid or that kid. We'd all share our our um, feelings about certain things, I guess you'd say. And we all helped each other in that regard, you know, in making things happen. That's great. Now, yeah. your cousin Pat uh, tells us that you have a great Paul McCartney story. Oh, my God. She, that's because she thinks she was Paul McCartney's wife. And I said, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> uh, we argue about this all the time. Um, I did a show with George Slaughter. It was, um, it was a charity event. It was a live, it's a big charity event. I think it was Carousel of Hope and um, the diabetes thing. And so I come that morning and I look at the rundown and it says Paul McCartney. And I'm like, now I was a Paul McCartney fan as a child. I, I saw their last concert in the Candlestick Park. I scooped up. Um, I scooped up dirt that he'd walked on. Uh, um, Pat says she is his next wife. Oh, fine. 
<laughs> He's married. I'm not. I have first tab. So okay. anyway, so Paul, uh, they tell me Paul's going to be on the show. And I went, not really. You guys are joking me. And they said, really? And so I said, um, well, okay, what are we doing? And they said, he's going to be up in the hotel room. And then when you want him to come down, his guy's going to come. And so they they come to me, his guy comes to me and he says, okay, just call me and we'll bring him down at this time. Now, if you're at the Beverly Hilton, your little wings are like, like the smallest little tiny things you could be in, you know, there's no wing space. So the guy says, uh, when Paul comes down, he goes, can Linda come over with him? And I went, oh, no, it's too small. There's not enough room here. <laughs> So Paul comes over. Now, Stevie Wonder, the audience doesn't know that Paul's going to be on the show, you know. And these are like the wives and the biggest people in L.A. You know, it's a big charity event. So he comes and he's in my little wing and he and I are just standing like this close together. And Stevie starts singing Paul songs. Well, Paul starts singing in my left ear. And I'm like, I'm getting a Paul McCartney concert. And so when I finally cued him out, I said, I want to walk over there and cue you because I want to watch the audience. So I stood over there and they said, ladies and gentlemen, Paul McCartney. He walks out. Well, these women in their big gowns and everything were like, ah, you know, and I was like, but I just had a concert in this year. And then I worked with him a lot of times on the Oscars. I worked with him and I told him about my Candlestick Park story. I said, I went and saw your last concert in Candlestick Park. We're down in the in the bowels of the Kodak Theater at his dressing room. And he said, could you see me? I said, not very well. He goes, could you hear me? Not very well. Everybody was screaming. And he goes, you know, we use doubles. And we use doubles. I used to double for that show. I said, do not tell me this. I said, the blood is starting to drain out of my body right now, my 14-year-old body, you know. And he goes... Just kidding. No, we did that one. <laughs> oh, my God. Mine was about to come out of mine. Yes. I know. You're messing with me, Paul. And uh, and he was like, he's always been like that. And every show, actually on that Oscar show, I remember walking ahead of him because I wanted to see the reaction on all the celebrities' faces. When they see Paul McCartney, people lose their you-know-what. And so I'm walking ahead of him, and I had bought this skirt on La Brea. It was really kind of fun. And he went, love your skirt. And I was like, Oh my God, Paul McCartney loves my skirt. You know, it's like a, I will, I will put it in a frame now. You know, so yes, that's my Paul McCartney story. And well, Mitzi Gaynor is a friend of mine, and uh-huh. she, and Mitzi Gaynor was booked on the Ed Sullivan Show the same night that the Beatles were booked on the show. No. So she said when her agent called and uh, for her to be on the Ed Sullivan Show, she said, "Who else is on the show?" Uh-huh. And he said, "Well, a group called the Beatles." And she said, oh, that's great. No one's ever heard of them because they were not known in the States. No, no. And so she said she's in her dressing room and all of a sudden she hears this sound and it sounded like the building was falling down. And she said, what is that sound? And he said, the Beatles are on stage. And she walked out and she said, oh my God, that's fine. Uh, there's There's a photograph and it says Mitzi Gaynor on the marquee and the Beatles. Of and course. Said, but nobody to this day remembers that she was on that show. <laughs> I don't remember either, you know. So I want to ask you, and this is going to wrap up the show brilliantly today because of the story that you just told. Um, you have had this amazing career working with so many incredible people. But, Debbie, I have to say, they've had the pleasure of working with you. Oh, that's so nice so, of you, Richard. Yeah, I appreciate so, that. Um, do you get do you still get starstruck? Not by celebrities, by politicians. When I did Women's March in DC and all these politicians, now that's my, you know, like, oh, and astronauts. Astronauts and politicians. If there's an astronaut, like um, who was it that was on Dancing with the Stars? And Dancing with the Stars is in the studio next to Idol. And uh, gosh, I wish I could remember who it was, but I knew he was over there. Mm-hmm. And he was rehearsing and I had to go over there to say, and I went, you don't know me, but I'm an astronaut groupie. I mean, I've always loved astronauts. I, I, I was that kid in the sixties, you know, I just was always looking up. Can I see the rocket? Can I see it? You know, and I am a nut when it comes to outer space. And so, uh, no, not, not celebrities, but if there's an astronaut or a politician, I'm all in. Uh, Buzz Aldrin. 
That was who it was. Yes, Buzz Aldrin. Yes. So who is the one politician that you would really get gaga over meeting? Oh, gosh. Well, I've worked with several presidents. Um, I worked with Reagan, Bush, uh, baby Bush. I did the Republican National Convention once um, when it was dull. Um, and I saw Kennedy in person when I was a little girl. I was supposed to give skates to Caroline in Detroit, Michigan, and Pierre Salinger pulled the plug on it. So we went downstairs to the hotel and I saw Kennedy coming down the elevator. And I was um, like, oh my God, you know, now I don't know, you know, like any of them, really. I mean, I'm, I, I got to go and meet Al Franken. Uh, my friend Sandy was friends with Al Franken because she had worked on SNL. So the day before the inaugural, we went and visited Al Franken in his little office. And when you were in his little corner office, you see him all coming and going and walking. And I'd be like, oh, my God, we're right here. They're right here, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm starstruck. And Al was amazing. He, I'm sorry he's not there anymore because he was pretty amazing. He gave us a half an hour. We talked to him and it, he couldn't have been nicer. Uh, but I don't know any of them, you know, I'm, I'm awestruck by wow. what they do. The ones that do the good stuff, not the ones that do the bad stuff. That's right. Well, yes. I'm telling you, Debbie, I'm starstruck today with you. Uh, thank, no, you uh, thank you for saying yes. Thank you for being oh, here. No, I'm um, I don't know if it's PC for me to say this, but I'm in love with you. Uh, no, I love your energy. I, I mean, hearing about you again, I want to thank Rose. Don't go anywhere for a moment because I'm going to say my closing remarks and then I'm going to give it to you. You've got the final word today. Anything you want to say about anything that we talked about today that you want to build upon anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final word. Don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the final credits will roll. Um, and I hope that anytime that you feel that you have something to say or that you want to come back, that you will come back on the show. I appreciate uh, that. Thank yes, you, Richard. Please, please, please. I just had a blast with you today. So Good. thank you for saying yes and being here. And thank, thank you. you for the gifts that you've given to the world and that you will continue to give because everyone, all of these shows that you've worked on, uh, we have... Uh, been blessed by them. So thank, thank you. you for that. Um, the word that I chose today was growth. Uh, we all grow from the people that we meet and the circumstances that come on in our lives. So I want to thank all of you for being here. Pat, great, uh, great uh, meeting you today <laughs> for being here. And, uh, and I hope uh, when that wedding happens that uh, I will get an invitation. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be me, Richard. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Uh, she's going to be singing in your ear when it happens. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but thank you all for being here today. Um, we are going into a new month. And I always think of November as the month of gratitude. Uh, if each of us takes every day to be grateful for the things that we have in our lives uh, and we reach out to spread that gratitude around, I do believe that we can have a better world. And we have a week from today, vote, 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 as if our lives depend on it, because it does. They do. <laughs> um, it does. Um, as you all uh, heard this morning, uh, I made a decision to leave a certain platform, and I'm going to be leaving another one as well for my own uh, uh, reasons, uh, but we are all responsible for what we put out in the world. Um, when you see a post, um, you have a choice. Um, I heard someone talking last night. I'm going to go there for a moment. Um, and he shared a book uh, that uh, was about anti-Semitism. And when he was called on it, he said, don't blame me, blame the author. But he chose to share that to his audience. And this was a very famous athlete who has a huge platform. Each of us have our friends, our families, and our followers who hang on to what we say. So we are responsible for what we put out in the world. Uh, and we can't just shirk it off uh, as to, I'm not responsible for that, someone else did it. If you share it, 
you're responsible for it. So let that be the lesson for today. Uh, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expe uh, expecting anything in return. Go to your Facebook friends list and the ninth name that pops up, reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, uh, not a private inbox message, a phone call. And let that person know what they mean to you. Uh, as my dear friend Sean Moniger always says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. You never know what someone else is going through right now. But I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. So <laughs> I'm going to leave the screen, Debbie. It's all yours. Uh, and again, I hope that you'll come back sometime. Please stay in touch. And I would love it. I today. would love it. No, I appreciate it. You know, and I have, to say some, my, I have to say that of all the shows I've ever done, um, and there's been, oh God, so many, uh, my... My best production, I think, are both my children, Taylor and Dylan. Uh, they're both married now. And I have my first grandson, which I think is like the coolest thing in the whole world. My little grandson's name is Ren. And all the shows, all the glitz, all the glamour does not compare to what I'm going through right now with having my little seven-month-old grandson. I know that sounds so corny, but um, my kids always came first. Uh, and they know that. And even though mom was out there working hard, both my kids have a great work ethic. My son was in Jersey Boys on Broadway, I have to say that. Um, they're great and, and I love them a lot and I hope that they're proud of their mama. <laughs>